some of you will giggle and laugh, and others of you will be like, that's not very funny. So I'm just going to say, so anyway, we're, we're at the service, and, and the worship leader is this young African-American guy, and he's leading worship, he's getting into it, you know, and he had the responsibility of introducing me as the speaker. So he and I briefly met, said, hey, it was very quick. And I could tell he's completely engrossed in the worship. And so, you know, as he's, as he's kind of finishing off on the piano, he goes, and now I want to introduce you all the way from Chicago, Pastor William Hung. <laughs> Guess what I did? I got up there. I went, she bang. She, no, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. So for those of you that are like, what is everybody laughing about? Turn to your neighbor and go, who the heck is William Hung? And they'll tell you, okay? I was going to actually get a big old picture up there. I realized I realize he, he and I look like we're from the same family, so I want to get a big old picture up there and make sure. But um, afterwards, you know, the people, the people, and he had no idea what, what people were laughing at, you know, so everybody's cracking up. He's up there going, what, what's so funny? What's so funny? And... Uh, so that was the introduction to a great weekend out in Sacramento. Um, and, 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 and I told you guys this before. Every time I travel, I always, I always uh, come back home appreciating you guys. Um, got a chance to talk to a number of people after the service, and they asked me about what I do. And, and one of the ways I like to actually tell them what I do is I tell them, I go, well, I actually get to pastor a group of people that are like non-existent in churches. 70, 80% of 19 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church leave the church. You go to most churches, and the people in your age group are completely non-existent. They're not there. 3,000-member church, probably about 100 people in your age group. And that's a common phenomenon all over the country. And so I don't know why y'all continue to show up week in and week out. I kind of know. The Spirit of God is at work here. But it's such a privilege for me to know that I get to pastor a group of people, frankly, who've checked out a church and said, church is irrelevant, it's boring, it's not for me. And these are people who consider themselves Christian and walked away. So it's a huge blessing for me, I want you guys to know. And I come back always appreciating what it is that I do. Uh, to open your Bibles to Jonah, okay, Jonah chapter 2. I'm wondering if I should put on my, if I should put on my uh, you know, card, Pastor Peter Hong, a.k.a. William Hung, you know. And put a little phone, phone number on there. Ask Sacramento uh, boss, Bayside of South Sacramento Church, why. It was, it was hilarious. It, was, it cracked me up. I was actually surprised that many of you guys laughed because uh, Pastor Michael Washington had no idea who he was. <laughs> so I had to explain to him. I said, American Idol? And he said, what's that? I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can do that because he's not here this morning, right? It was an interesting conversation with my favorite pastor. I mean, one of my favorite pastoral staff person. <laughs> Jonah chapter 2. Enough of nonsense. Let's get into God's word. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Y'all there? Okay. Well, as we enter into Jonah chapter 2, I want to kind of set you the context. How many of you have read the book, Les Mis? Victor Hugo? Yeah? Raise your hands. Okay. Some of you are familiar with it. In the book, sort of the main character is a guy named Jean Valjean, is my wife taught me to pronounce. She took French. She's all snobby, right? It's not Jean Valjean. And she's like, no, no. It's Jean Valjean. Okay, so anyway, he's a main guy. He serves many years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And after he gets out, he's taken in by a very gracious bishop. Some of you are familiar with the story. What happens? Old habits die hard. And he steals some pieces of silver and runs away. 
But after he runs, he's soon caught by the authorities, by the police, and he's brought back to where he was staying with the bishop. And what happened? Some of you guys remember the scene. He knows that he probably, if he is indeed caught for thievery again, he's going to be put in prison for probably the rest of his life. And there's this fa- famous, powerful scene where the authorities say, do you know this man, right? And he says, yeah. And he got the piece of silver. And what does the bishop do? Do you remember? The bishop essentially acts as if the silver was a gift to him. He says, oh, no, that's okay. Matter of fact, there's this powerful scene where he goes back, grabs more pieces of silver, and he says, my friend, said the bishop, before you go away, here are your candlesticks. Take them. He went to the mantelpiece, took the two candlesticks, and handed them to Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was trembling all over. He took the two candlesticks distractedly with a bewildered expression. Now, said the bishop, go in peace. By the way, my friend, when you come again, you don't need to come to the garden. You could always come and go by the front door. It's only with the latch. It's only closed with the latch day or night. And Jean Valjean is changed forever at this expression of grace. His life is transformed forever. Matter of fact, for the rest of the book, he becomes a benefactor of one gracious act after another. He rescues a destitute and disadvantaged woman turned prostitute. He saves a man about to be crushed under a cart and later finds employment for him. He protects a woman's daughter from a situation of child slavery and treats her as his own granddaughter. So the powerful truth that we learn from this book is that anybody that encounters true grace, you can't not help but be changed. Any of you sitting out there who has truly experienced the grace of God, your life can never be the same again. Someone who has been the recipient of a grace this powerful cannot walk away untransformed. And the question is, have you encountered or experienced the grace of God? Because you can't remain the same. You can't remain the same. Story of Jonah, it's not just a story about a guy who was eaten by a fish and vomited out. Story of Jonah is a story about our sin, God's grace, which we're going to talk about today, and God's mission. The essential background story is God calls a prophet by a man named Jonah. It gives him almost an impossible mission to go to Nineveh, Israel's hated, most dangerous enemy, to preach the gospel. But Jonah doesn't know the gospel. He understands some parts of it, but doesn't understand his sin, God's grace, and God's mission. So he runs. And we've been saying that we all run. Running is essentially saying, God, I'm going to take control of my own life and do things my own way. Running from God. Essence of sin is saying, God, I don't like the way you're doing my job. Get out of my chair. Anybody done that? Uh-huh. I just did that this past week. God, I don't like the way you're doing my job. Essence of sin, get out of my chair. That's my chair. Essence of sin. And you could do that both as a religious person or an irreligious person. That's all review. We need to move on. So what does God do? God sends a storm. God will always send a storm to any one of us who is so delusional into thinking that we could do life on our own. God will always send a storm to any one of us who said, God, I don't like the way you're doing my job, so let me take care of it. God always sends a storm to help us see that we are not very good at doing this job of running our own lives. And then he sends a gracious fish who swallows up Jonah. And inside the belly of the fish, Jonah begins to understand grace. And chapter 2 is this beautiful poetry poem where we see him beginning to understand grace. Let's look. Chapter 2, verse 1. 
From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, God, in my distress, I call to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I call for help, and you listen to my cry. Two quick points from last week or two weeks ago. Do you remember? Number one, Jonah never stops praying. In his rebellion, in his sin, in his distress, Jonah never stops praying. And that is absolutely important to understand grace and transformation. Jonah is like Job. Do you remember Job? Chapter after chapter, Jonah curses God, questions God's wisdom and sovereignty. He says, God, I'm almost done with this. But what does Jonah do? Jonah never stops praying. He does all of that in God's presence. Jonah never stops praying. And we learn, no matter where you are, no matter where you are, what situation you're in, never ever stop talking to God. He could handle you questioning him. He could handle you cursing the day you were born. He could handle your anger. He just wants you to do it in his presence. Hmm? Secondly, God hears the prayer of the fugitive. This is incredible. God listens to the prayer of the fugitive. And I said, how many of you guys, for that's deterring you from going to God? God, you don't know the mess I'm in. I am in a deep mess. I have run from you. And you're going to listen to my cry? I, I, I just can't believe it. So I'm going to continue to run. God says, I hear you. I hear you. So he goes on. Prayer goes on. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Third point that we learned, the circumstances in your life are being used by God not to pay you back, but to bring you back. Verse 4, and I said, I've been banished from your sight. I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped. I'm sorry. I can't read that without laughing. Seaweed was wrapped around my head, which I go, well, then get some rice and eat it, right? <laughs> that's because that's I'm Korean, though, okay? Verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But, you're, but, but you're, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's it right there. The whole Bible. See right there? Salvation comes from the Lord. We'll talk more about that next week. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. What a scene. We'll talk about grace this week. We'll talk about grace a little bit next week. We talked last uh, two weeks ago, why is understanding grace so important? Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. You need to get this. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Paul pictures uh, the gospel, gospel growing in an organic metaphor. He's saying, when the gospel has grabbed a hold of you and it changes you and you begin growing, he says this, just as I've been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and all its truth. This is a powerful principle you and I need to get. He says, this is how you know you become a Christian. Not saying, I believe God. He's saying, you know that you become a Christian when you understand God's grace and all the truth. If you haven't understood God's grace, you're not a Christian. Do you hear that? Becoming a Christian isn't saying, yep, I say yes to a, theory, you know, a handful of doctrinal beliefs. He says, no, no, no. The day that the gospel entered you and you begin to understand it is the day that the spiritual transformation began to begin to change you. Why is it important? Because without understanding it, 
And understanding it is, it begins to melt you. It begins to transform you. It begins to grab a hold of you. It begins to electrify you. It begins to, in in, in a powerful way, shock you. When that happens the day that you were born. Did y'all know that? This isn't just an isolated saying in Scripture. The day that you understood God's grace is the day you go, Why is it important? It is fundamental, the spiritual encounter with God and transformation. So then what is grace? Do you guys remember? Review. What is grace? The Hebrew word is, say it with me, chen. You got to like do the whole phlegm thing. Okay, ready? Say chen. Chen. From the Hebrew word hanan. What does chen mean? It means favor among other things. And what does favor mean? And we go, hey, can you do me a favor? My favorite saying, by the way, hey, can you do me a favor? And most people know, do I have an option? No, you don't have an option, right? Just do it. Can I do it? When we think favor, we think someone doing an act for us. But favor, literally in Hebrew, has a sense to let someone in to a place that they don't deserve to be in by someone who is not obligated to let that person in. Let me say that again. Favor, grace, is to let someone in to a place that they don't deserve to be in by someone who's not obligated to let them in. The number of references put it up there in the Old Testament. One of the main ones is Genesis 32.5, where uh, Jacob, having betrayed his family, his brother especially, Esau is coming back. And he says to Esau, Esau, will you grant me favor in your eyes? In other words, he's saying, Esau, let me back in. Let me back Even though I don't deserve to be back in, and you're not obligated to let me in, let me back in. So definition of grace You and I say it all the time, Christians, grace, grace, grace. Here's what it means. It's favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Favor granted to an undeserving person. In other words, being led into a place you have no business being in by someone who's not obligated to let you in. Do you all get that? Favor. Now, why does this whole doctrine of grace hit us so deeply? Because we all want to be led in. We all want to be received. Every single one of us. I don't need to know your story. C.S. Lewis, whole concept of the inner ring. We are a world of joiners. Even lone wolves tend to travel in packs. Remember the trauma of high school? Trying to figure out what clique you belong to? Anybody? Like 10 of us? 10 of us? Okay. Anybody? Okay. High school was traumatic for me for a number of reasons. Number one was obviously the fact that it was high school. Lane Tech was enormous, 5,500 students, huge. Another reason, I had been in the United States for about four or five years until that time, and my English was still, by the way, you know, I, I, when I travel outside, people ask, you go, when did you come to the States? I tell them, 10 years old, and they go, your English is very good. It's like, who and I still get asked, well, where are you from, North Korea or South Korea? I seriously want to say to them, are you from, like, another planet or Earth, you know? I know that's mean, right? I go, North Korea? I still get asked. North Korea? You can't get out if you're in North Korea. Anyway, that's another whole story. <laughs> where, where was I? Yes, yes. Joiners. I could put joiners, right? The trauma high school. Sports. I wanted so badly to be accepted. Sports. You know, I played base school, baseball growing up. And I so wanted to be in that crowd. And then I thought the kids in the orchestra were really cool. So I picked up the violin so I could play the violin really well. And I stunk, but really wanted to join that group. The only group I didn't want to join was a group of nerds. By the way, you don't get to join the nerds, right? You get, kind of get placed there, right? <laughs> people, people decide that for you. So anyway, I didn't want to do that, right? 
But this whole trauma of wanting to join, wanting to be in, it doesn't end with high school, does it? I'm talking to grown-ups now, right? No, we grow up and we want to join that club, that team, political party, sorority, fraternity. We all want to be a part of this thing. And we mark ourselves that we belong by tattoos and, and symbols and labels. By the way, do you guys notice? Have you noticed lately? In the last 15, 20 years? Have you noticed that the labels have moved from the inside of our clothes to the outside? Have you moved? Right? So is everybody looking and going, oh yeah, I, you, you belong. Let's do a little, little test here. So Izod has a what? Izod has a alligator. Right? Abercrombie and Fitch has a don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to fit you as a, as a moose, right? Sh- Hollister has a shamrock. Polo has a horse and a rider, right? Right, yeah. Does anybody know modern amusement? Anybody modern amusement? I'm really just kind of, no. True religion, true religion has Buddha, by the way, which true religion Buddha might be getting to something, right? We all live in a society where people go, you belong to that group. You belong to that group. And we desperately want to. So what do we do? We tattoo ourselves, pierce ourselves, we mutilate ourselves to be our unique selves that look a lot like everybody else. On the other end of the spectrum, Botox, collagen, so that somebody would find us attractive. What is that all about? Are we just screwed up? Are we just weird with us? No. What is it? We all want to be in. There's every single one of us, this group, this belonging, this sense of, I want to be received. Because we think that's what will make us whole. That's what will make us secure. There's some, some, some group of people, some significant persons. If only they would accept us. If only they would receive us. If only they would think I was okay, then everything will be okay. And what does the gospel say? Here's what the gospel is. Here's how you understand grace. The gospel comes to you and says, all of you who desperately wanted to fit into that group and you are completely devastated because you haven't been. And some of you, you have been received by that group and to your surprise, you find yourself still empty. The gospel comes and says, you know what that is? That longing is because you've been created to long for that one. The only inner ring that counts. His name. Is the Lord, the Creator. The banished from Garden of Eden, every single, I don't even know your story, every single one of us. I'm, I feel out. I feel out. I want back in. And the gospel comes and says, the reason why you feel that is because you've been separated from the only inner ring that counts. And the gospel comes and says powerfully, here's the bad news. The bad news is that you can't get into that ring because you're good looking. Because you're athletic. Because you make a lot of money. Because you're bright. Because you're religious. You can't get in by your moral effort. The good news, oh, you can get in. Not because of your goodness, but because of his goodness. You can get in. Not because of your payment, but his payment. You can get in. Not because you're moral good, but because he lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. And the only inner ring that counts, the only person who you need to be received by says, and freely by grace, I'm not obligated, you could come in. Is that good news? Is that good news? That's great news. So you know what grace is? Gospel? Gospel is favor being let in, granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. 
is being let in, not because of your goodness, but his goodness. Being let in, not because of what's in your heart, but because of what's in his heart. That means that anybody has a chance. That's great news for me. You're going to search all your life apart from Creator to want to get in, and it'll change from season to season. That neighborhood, that school, that club, those people, and you'll always walk away empty, unfulfilled, until you realize that it is that one, the only entering. So the first half is favor, undeserving person. And the second half, real quick, is unobligated giver. They're not obligated to give it to you at all. Obligated to give it to you at all. What does that mean? Well, three imagine really quick, right? You're an employer. You have a business. You hire people. And you pay them. Is that grace? No. Why? You're contractually obligated to pay them. They do the work. You pay them. Second example. Your campus staff worker, InterVarsity, Andy, works tirelessly at InterVarsity. And he says, I feel God calling me to move to somewhere else. And so all the people in InterVarsity decide we're going to take him out to dinner, treat him, so on and so forth. Is that grace? Yes and no. Why? Does he deserve it? Somewhat. He's worked his tail off. He's poured out his life. But is he, are they obligated to? No. Nobody joins InterVarsity and says, to be a part of InterVarsity, you must take out your staff worker for dinner when he decides to move on. What is pure grace? You live in an apartment building. Your neighbor is a jerk. Anytime he turns on his music really, really loud, you say, can you turn the music down? He says, I'm going to turn it louder. Anytime you turn on your music, classical, nice Beethoven, he calls the police. (laughs) What do you do? He gets sick. He can't turn on music. He's walking around like a sick dog. Grace, you make soup for him. And you care for him. You get his mail. You answer uh, uh, his, his messages. You buy groceries. Are you obligated to? Absolutely not. Are you even morally because of what he's done? Absolutely not. But you do it. Why? Grace. If you think about, you realize that's what God does to us. Matter of fact, Jonah gets to the heart of this. Jonah gets to the heart of this in this very, in this very, very text. Jonah chapter 2. There are two words. There are two words that gets to the heart of what grace is. And those words are, and yet. Verse 4 says, I have been banished from your sight. And then he says, and yet. And verse 6. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you. I was in this condition. And yet. He heard me. You know what grace is? Grace says, and, and yet, at the center of it, there's absolutely no connection between what came before and what comes after. So it's, I was running, and yet, he ran after me. I was, I was unworthy of your forgiveness. Say it with me, church. And yet, you forgave me. I should have been dead because I lived a life of destruction. Say it with me. And yet, you kept me alive. I was spiritually dead. And yet, you gave me spiritual life. I was your enemy cursing you. And yet, you reached down and you grabbed a hold of me and pulled me out from the depths of my sin and depravity. 
Do you know that this concept and yet grace is written all over scripture? Romans chapter 3. Check this out. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare die. But God. Oh my God. But God. That is written and yet. And yet. Written all over. And yet. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Good news. And yet. Hmm. I so want this. You know why I so want this? Because until you understand this, there will be no transformation in your life. Why? The people who understand the end yet, they're bold, they're confident, they're humble, they're real. Christians who don't understand the end yet are terrified of being real. You know why? Because if you don't understand the end yet, you're scared of looking at yourself in the mirror. And seeing the real you. You and I are terrified seeing them in life. Because if we see in the mirror and we see what we really are, we're terrified of the truth. So we refuse to be real with ourselves. And the people that get the end yet though are not afraid to look in the mirror and have a realistic perspective of who they are because they know there is an end yet force in their lives. Talk to anybody who's gone through radical transformation. I just talked to a friend of mine while I was out in West Coast. He's going through AA. He's going through AA, some severe addictions in his life. And he said one of the first things Peter I had to come to grips with is I need to be able to own up to my sins and own up to my weaknesses, own up to my frailty. And he said, for years and years and years, I couldn't do that. Why? Because I was terrified. Why were you terrified? Because as a Christian, here's what I thought. My performance is what God judges. My performance and my religiosity is what God judges me on. So if I admit that I have failed, that means there goes my identity significance. There goes, there goes the foundation of who I am. So I refuse to admit that I failed. I lived years in a lie, total lie, total lie, total delusion. Never ever taking off my ask, never ever taking up my mask and being real with my community group, being real with the people around me. Why? Because I was terrified. What if they judge me? What if they don't accept me? What if? And he said, it wasn't until I took my mask off and said, here it is, all of me. Why was he able to do that? And yeah. I am a sex addict, and yet God isn't finished with me yet. I am a liar and a cheater, and yet God is at work in me. Do you understand this? Christians, child of God, do you understand? Is this hand yet dynamic at work in your life? There's this kind of raw, bold, honesty and authenticity. Of course not. Of course not. That's why, that's why I yell at you guys this every week. Because we say, I understand grace. God accepts me. No, you don't understand. Because if you understood, and yeah, if we understood this, church, our community groups would look radically different. How many say amen to that? Our church culture, we look radically. If every single one of us lived this and yet, are you kidding me? Non-Christians, broken people, messed up people. They wouldn't be able to wait to get into this building and to meet with you. 
broken, messed up, flawed people who think that it's about performance because their whole lives, the world conditions them. It's about your performance. So if you fail religiously and otherwise, you're done, man. That's what they believe in. That's what the church is. So they come in here and they see other people walking around with the mask, unable to get the end yet. And so what do they do? They go, they're not like any, they're not any different from the world out there. I don't feel safe here. But if there's a group of people that really live this truth, and yet, and as a result, we're bold and confident and yet completely humble. Oh, we would not be able to, we would not be able to contain all the people that would want to be a part of you. And yet, say it with me. Say it with me. And yet. And yet. Do you get it? To get it, not just here, but here. How do you receive grace? How do you receive grace? We're going to spend the next two weeks talking about how you receive grace. And next Sunday, for those of you that were wondering, I'm going to spend most of my time going, here are the clear signs that you have indeed received grace. Those are sort of a checklist, if you If you're going, Peter, I think I kind of understand grace. I think I kind of embrace grace. I think I'm kind of a Christian. Well, next week you'll know why. There are two facets to understanding grace. Here they are. Ready? See not only your unworthiness to receive grace, but also the height that God went to give it. Say this with me. Ready? Here we go. See not only your unworthiness to receive it, but the height that God went to give it. That's how you understand grace. You begin to understand grace when you see these two facets. You can't just see one of these. You need to see both of these. You see both of these. First of all, look at what Jonah does to help him see his unworthiness, the first part. To grow in the knowledge of his sin. Verse 8, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. This is profound. He says, if you want to see the depths of your sin, listen. If you see the depths of your sin, you will see the depths of your unworthiness. Because there's the thing. You can't just walk out and go, I'm a bad person. Peter told me I'm bad. I'm unworthy. Peter told me, it doesn't work. You know why? Nobody feels sinful in general. You know what I mean? We don't walk around and go, I just feel unworthy in general. No. What does the Bible say? He says, what are the idols in your life? What are the gods in your life? What are those two things, those things that you're looking to for your significance, your identity? What are the things in your life that give you life, meaning? What are the things in your life you look to and say, that's my salvation, as long as I have that? What are the things in your life that you're looking to say, in that I find my ultimate salvation? Think about it, guys. If experiencing grace is, is experiencing and understanding an utter need for it, the very thing that will block that, the very thing that forfeits that grace coming into your life, is the thing that you're looking to for meaning and for life and for significance. I don't have time to go through the whole sermon on this, but can I just mention two that we see in the book of Jonah? The most lethal, self-righteousness. You know what self-righteousness is? We talked about it a little bit. Is you feeling like God owes you. Anybody else guilty of that besides me? Yeah, yeah, all the time. And there are three ways that I feel that. Number one, I'm a good person. I'm moral. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I'm an upstanding citizen. So, God, I deserve a better life. God, I deserve you answering my prayers. God, I deserve that you work my life out the way you want me to. You owe me. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. This plagues, oh, about 80% of you. Second way, comparison, self-righteousness. 
I'm not a mass murderer, but I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. So we judge on this balanced scale in our own mind that we've created. We go, well, I don't do those things, and I certainly don't do those things. So therefore, I'm kind of, so what do we do? Again, we go, I'm not as bad as them, God, so you owe me my life. Answer prayers. Third way we do it, this is hard. Some of us, we lived a very, very difficult life, very hard life, very hard life. And we look at people who've had an easy life, and they seem to be doing well. They're successful. They're married, all those things. And what do we do? We look at those people. We look at those people and saying, God, that's not fair. You owe me. That's not fair. My life has been hard. I've gone through some things. And those people, they've had an easy life, and they're being blessed. How is that fair that an immoral person gets to live an easy life and a righteous person lives up? Come on, how many of us struggle with this? If you feel like God owes you, you'll not experience grace. Think about it. The very fundamental attitude going, you owe me grace, favor, undeserving, not obligated. You owe. Secondly, religion. Do you know that some of us worship Christianity? You go to services, Bible study, you help out, and check this out. You know what that makes you feel? That makes you feel clean. How many of had a terrible night last night, God, did some things I shouldn't have. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read the Bible. Why? It makes me feel clean. <laughs> Laughter means amen, nervously. Okay. Of course we do. We do this all the time. I've had a rough night. Oh, I shouldn't have done some things I shouldn't have. So I'm going to pray. Why? Because you want to commune with God? No. Makes me feel clean. Our treasure is not Christianity. Our treasure is Christ. Big difference. Big difference. Being religious so that we feel clean, being religious so that God would accept us, is not Christ. It's religion to its core. Are you hearing me? You're clean because Christ cleanses you, not because you read your Bible. Amen? You're clean because he accepts you as a child of God, not just because you pray. Are you hearing me? What are you most angry about? What are you most angry about? You want to find idols, idolatry in your life? You ask, what am I most angry about? What are the things in my life that I think I need to be significant? I think I need to have meaning in life, and it's being blocked. I'm not getting it, so I'm angry. Underneath that is an idol. What are you most worried about? You're sitting here, you're anxious, you're worried about that thing. Why? Again, that thing is the thing that you find significance and meaning in, and you're afraid that you might not get it. You're afraid that you might lose it. You're afraid that that might not come true. And so as a result, you're worried, you're anxious, you're fretting. What are you most despondent about? What have you failed at recently? What have you not done right recently? And as a result of that, you're looking at that going, oh, I'm despondent to the core. Why? Your whole identity is built on your performance and how you perform, and you failed, and so therefore... There goes your identity. There goes your significance. If you want to find idols in your life, you don't have to look hard. What are you most angry about? What are you most anxious and worried about? What are you most despondent about? Underneath our depression, underneath our eating disorders, underneath our anger, underneath our bitterness, underneath our unwillingness to forgive is an idol. And God says, that idol forfeits the grace 
that could be yours. Here's the thing about idols. And you guys, I talk about this all the time, so I'm going to wrap this up. Move on. Idol can't come through for you. You and I know this. That idol can't come through for you. I can't tell you the number of times people walk into my office bowling their eyes out and saying, I thought that if I just made enough money, I thought that that girl, I thought that that guy, I thought that I was a good person and that idol is utterly, utterly destroyed and they feel like there's no self. That idol cannot come through for you. That idol can't be your security because it may be here tomorrow. It'll be here today, but tomorrow... The only thing that can find absolute security and certainty is your heavenly father. <sighs> you got to smash those idols or you'll forfeit the grace of could be yours. What does it mean to smash it? Because it's a little easier when you have a gold statue. You know, you can get a hammer and go, <clears throat> it's gone. God, I'm done. How do you smash the idols? Two things real quick. And I talk about this all the time. So this review, smashing those idols is first of all admitting, God, I am building my life on this foundation. It's not you. I'm building my foundation on this. I'm building my life on this. I know it. You know it. My husband knows it. My friends know it. I am building my life on this foundation. And God, I'm going to uproot it. That's what repentance is, yes, in the, in the scripture. Repentance is not saying, God, I'm sorry for that. Repentance is saying, God, that is where I'm building my life on. This is where I'm building my life on. And I'm going to uproot this thing. I'm going to uproot it because my life and foundation security cannot be on this. And I'm going to build my foundation on a whole other. That is Christ. That is Christ. First, how do you experience grace? See our unworthiness by seeing the idols in our lives. But there's a second component. The second component is, but you also need to see the height to which God has gone to give you grace. you got to see the height to which God is going to give you grace. And it's found all over this text. And I love it. Look at verse 4. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Listen, you guys. Listen, listen. Grace, if you just walk out of here going, man, I feel terrible, man. i got idols in my life, and I'm building my life on this foundation. Boy, I'm never going to experience grace. If that's all you see, you're not going to experience grace. But in order for you to have the courage and the strength to be able to go, God, I'm building my life on this, you need to see the second part, which is you need to be able to see the height. You need to be able to see the height to which God went to give you grace. And we do that by looking at the temple. Jonas, twice. Says, I to the temple. I'm here, God. I've been banished. And yet, I look to the temple. I'm at the pits of the mountains. And yet, I look to the temple. Why? What's in the temple? I love teaching you guys stuff like this. I love it. Can you tell? I love it. I'm like salivating here. And I go, oh, they wait, they wait till they hear this. What's in the temple? The temple is a picture of the gospel. The temple is a picture of how God reconciles sinful man. With God himself. The temple is a picture of how we can experience an encounter of the gospel. And we can be received back in. The temple. The temple. The temple. Now check this out, guys. Check this out. What was in the temple? In the temple was the holy of holies where God dwelled. And the holy of holies, in the center of the holy of holies where God dwelled, was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the, in the middle of the Ark of the Covenant was, anybody know? Bible says, anybody know? What? The Ten Commandments. The law. So here's what God was saying to the Israelites. He said, here's what you need to do. You want to meet me? I do on the Holy of Holies. And if you want to meet a holy God in the Holy of Holies, you got to come over the law. You got to meet me over the law. You got to relate to me over the law. In other words, he gives the Ten Commandments. He says, anybody that wants to relate to a holy, perfect God must obey the law holy and perfectly. That way, you and I can meet. 
That's the way that sinful humanity can meet with God. Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. Show me. God says, oh no, I am holy. You're sinful. The only way that we can meet in the holy of holies is got to be over the law. You got to obey it. You got to obey it. You see the bad news? Bad news is what? Bad news is? We can't obey it. There's like two of us that feel that way. I just talked about idolatry. You go, I don't lie. I don't adultery. The first commandment is, do not have any other gods before me. Oh, I'm done with the first one. I can't obey it. We all know it intuitively in our culture. We say stuff like, oh, nobody's perfect. Yeah, exactly. We can't obey the law. We can't obey it. No matter how hard we try, we can't. Romans chapter 3, Paul says, therefore, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody can obey it. So therefore, therefore, the bad news. We can't know God, relate to God. What do we do? God says, good news. Over the Ark of the Covenant was a slab of gold. And it was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest representing all of Israel, would go into the Holy of Holies. And he would sacrifice an animal and sprinkle blood of that animal over the mercy seat. And all of Israel understood, ah, now we know grace can come to us because of a sacrificial substitute. You tracking? You tracking? You tracking? Okay. So once a year, the high priest would go into the, in the, inside the temple, Holy of Holies, and he would sacrifice blood. And that's how they know, even though we failed in fulfilling the law, even though we can't live up to the standards, God, you have offered a sacrifice. We have sacrificed on our behalf. And therefore, the blood is sprinkled. You can accept us the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat in Greek was a word called hilasterion. Everybody say it with me. Hilasterion. Hilasterion literally means the place of propitiation. Place of propitiation. Place of propitiation means to turn away in anger, to turn away into atone for. That's what Propitiation means. Hilasterion, place of propitiation. It's the place literally where God's wrath was averted. Now, when you and I think of God's wrath, every time I say this, when I, God's wrath, you go, oh, I don't like that. You know why? Because you think your wrath, right? You think crankiness. <laughs> you think, you do. We think crankiness. We think out of control anger. We think somebody, no, no, no. God's wrath, the Hebrews believe, was literally God's justice. And inherent to all of us is this belief that if there isn't justice in this world, this is not, an, this is not, a, it's not, it's not, it's not fair. And inherent to all of us is this belief that when somebody does wrong, commits evil, commits a crime, that justice needs to be administered to. And if we feel that, we think about how much a perfect holy God thinks that is necessary. Listen, you and I could not worship a God who looks at pedophiles, sex traffickers, rapists, and just smiles with, 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 without a care. He just looks the other way. You and I could not worship a God who looks at injustice and evil like that and says, well, boys will be boys. That God is not worthy of our worship. That God is not worthy of our worship. Every single one of us feels this inherent need that justice ought to be done for wrongdoings. And our God says, I am a perfect God who admits perfect justice and wrongdoings need to be atoned for. What do we do? Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is talking about the work of Christ. Listen to what he says. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. Here's the bad news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and justify freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In verse 25, Paul says, and God presented him as a sacrifice of, say it with me, atonement. In Greek, it's the word 
Hilasterion! In other words, Paul is saying, Jesus is our mercy seat. Either you're sitting there going, I still don't get it, man. Or you're sitting there going, Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus is the place upon which the sacrifice of an innocent blood was shed. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus takes our place. God doesn't just look away at injustice. God doesn't just look away at evil. God doesn't just look away at sin. God looks evil, injustice, it's sin, squirrel in the eyes. And he says, I will unleash my perfect, just wrath on who? On me? On you? On who? On Jesus. On Jesus. And Paul is literally saying, he, Jesus Christ, is the place upon which reconciliation between sinful man and a perfect God was made possible. Jesus is our mercy seat. For 2,000 years, Israelites looked forward to when that would be fulfilled when the perfect solution would come in which they can know God, relate to God, Jesus comes along and he says, I am the mercy seat. Jonah is voluntarily thrown into the sea so that he could save the men on the ship. Jesus is voluntarily thrown into the sea and storm of God's justice and wrath so that all of humankind who have no business being let in and don't deserve being let in, someone who's not obligated to let us in, could now say the way has been opened. Come on in. Is this good news? Here's what this means. That means that if you have too low a view, too low a view, too low a view of your sin, you'll miss out on grace. That means that there's some of you here today who say, like I did for years and years and years, as a pastor, as a Christian, I'm a good person, I'm a moral person, and I don't have anything coming to me that I don't deserve. And you basically look at it and say, I'm not all that bad. Matter of fact, I'm offended by the fact that you keep talking about punishment and sin and wrath because I'm not that bad. You know what you're like? You're like somebody who receives a, a gift that you can't afford. Somebody gives you a $3 million diamond and says, here. And you know you can't afford it, so what do you do? You get offended by it. You go, you think I can't afford this? And you can't afford it. But you say, I, here. Here's $30. Here's $30. Take it. What are you doing? You're saying, it's too, it is too good to be true that all I do is come and say, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Forgive me. That's too easy. What you're saying is, I can't just come to you. I got to clean myself a little bit. I got to clean myself up. So here's 30 bucks. What do you do? You insult the giver. 
You offend the gracious gift and you miss out on the relationship that could be yours. Some of you are doing that today. Some of you have been doing that for years. You come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And the reason why grace has not exploded in your heart is you're sitting there going, I can't admit that I need you. I can't. I'm a good person. You'll miss out on God's grace too low of your sin. You'll also miss out on God's grace if too low of God's mercy, too low of you of God's mercy. And that's, again, me and some of you in here. The people who say, my sin is too great. I am too messed up. But inherently, here's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm better than this. Anybody been there? I'm better than this. I shouldn't need God's grace for crying out loud. I know all the rules. I grew up in church. I'm a good moral person. I shouldn't need your grace. Literally, what you're saying is, God, you could say you've forgiven me, but I'm not going to forgive myself. And you hold on to it. Hold on to an attitude of self-righteousness. You say, no way. No way I'm going to ask because I'm better than this. And God's grace comes and says, as long as you hold on to your self-righteousness, you say, God, I'm better than this. You'll never experience God's grace. Who does God's grace come to? It's someone who understands church literally. And nobody is so bad that they can't receive God's grace. And nobody is so good that they don't need God's grace. It comes to somebody who sees their heart, somebody who sees their heart and say, God, I am unworthy. Oh, my gosh, my life is filled with idols. I could be a Christian and worship me. My life is filled with idols, but you don't just stop there. You see the height and the depth to which God has gone. You realize Jesus is my mercy seat. He died for me. He shed his blood for me. He paid the sacrifice for me, for me, for me. And if you're a if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're saying, what do I do, Peter? Here's what I want you to realize. God says, I relate over the law. And I know you're terrified of that because you're going, I'm not perfect. And God says, but Christ has lived the life you should have lived. He has died the death you should have lied. I can relate to you over the mercy seat. Come. Acknowledging what Jesus has done for you. Do you know that's what it means to become a Christian? For this thing going, how many rules and classes and jump? Becoming a Christian is literally coming to God and saying, God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I acknowledge that I will never be good enough to earn this entrance and acceptance. I acknowledge that Jesus did that for me. And I believe it in faith. If you're a Christian, can I talk to you for a second? If you're a Christian, this is how spiritual transformation comes, by looking to the temple. Looking to the temple. Do you know what faith is? Do you know what faith is? And we see this Jonah doing this. Faith, you guys, listen. Faith is going on, is depending on, anchoring yourself on the promises of God rather than your emotional mood or your impressions. Faith. Faith is anchoring yourself on the promises of God given to you in Scripture, in His Son, rather than going on your impressions. That's what faith is. And that's what Jonah is doing. That's what Jonah is saying. Here's how it helps you. It helps me. Jonah is saying, I feel banished. I feel abandoned by God. Anybody feel that way? Anybody been there? I feel, I feel like the Israelites. I'm in the wilderness, God. You have brought me to a desert. What am I doing here? My life. What am I doing here? What do you do? What do you do? Jonah does what? He looks to the temple. He looks at the temple and he says this. He says, I'm going to go on faith and not my emotions and my impression. I'm looking at the temple and I say, I see that God hung on the cross and didn't Abandon me while he's dying for my sins and the sins of the world. If he did that for me, what, do, what makes me think that he'll abandon me now? 
as I go through the smaller storms of life. You feel rejected by God. God, I feel rejected. My life circumstances tell me you have rejected me. You're not for me. Look to the temple. Look to the temple. What happened at the temple? Jesus, the Son of God, hanging on the cross. He has all the opportunity in the world to reject me because of my sins. I'm his enemy. But he hangs on the cross and says, for your acceptance, I am rejected by the Father. And if he did that for me, what makes me think he'll reject me now? You know what faith is? Faith is talking to your heart rather than listening to your heart. Faith is talking to your heart. It's preaching the gospel to your heart as you look at the temple. Doubt is listening to your heart and your impressions and your emotions. Faith is looking at the temple. Psalm 42. Why are you downcast on my soul? Why so disturbed within me? What's he doing? Talking to himself. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. Faith. Preaching to yourself. Talking to yourself. Doubt. Listening to your heart and its impressions. Let me show you how this works. How many of you struggle with unanswered prayer? When I don't have prayers unanswered, I go to God and inevitably I go, God, don't you care? I am praying for this. I am depending on you for this. And I said, I have all these thoughts about who God is and what he is and what he isn't. I have all these irrational, unbelieving things and my heart just shouts at me. And here's what it means to look at the temple. Listen, everybody, please look up here. Romans chapter 8, preaching to yourself. It says, for if God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us all things? You know, you preach yourself an unanswered prayer. And I'm talking to you. I'm talking to that. I'm talking to that couple. It says, we've been praying, God, for a child. And God, we don't have it. We don't have the child, God. And we're, we're hurting. We're in the wilderness. I'm, I'm talking to that person here who has cancer, who has a deep sickness and illness. And you're going, God, why will you not answer my prayer for healing and wholeness? I'm talking to that person who has been praying faithfully for God to open some doors. And you say, God, what does this mean? How do you care? And Romans chapter 8 simply says, if God comes, if someone comes and gives you a $3 million gift, the form of his son. Do you think he will skimp out on the wrapping paper? If somebody gives you the gift where he empties the treasury of heaven for you, do you think the same God will skimp out on the wrapping paper for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not, along with him, give us all things? I'm looking to the temple and I'm preaching the gospel to myself and I'm saying, God, I know who you are. I know what you have done. 
My heart shouts other things in unbelief. But I look to the temple and I say, you have emptied the treasury of heaven for me. And I know you're not going to skimp out on wrapping paper. Heavenly Father, I want you guys to know that it has been and is continuing to be a lifelong journey to truly understand grace and all its truth. But I've been a Christian long enough to know that I can't do this on my own. I can't. I need God, the Spirit, and His help for my heart to be melted, to be electrified, to be changed. And this morning, before we take communion, And this is a general sort of challenge and request, but this morning as you've sat here, and you, just, you just feel like, you know what? I, I just need some prayer, man. I just need some prayer. You can't even, you can't even connect the dots, and you, you, can't even, you can't even, some of you know exactly why, but some of you are like, I don't even know why, but I just know right now that I just need some, I just need some prayer. I just need somebody. I just need prayer. That's you this morning. Can you stand up from your seats? And we want to pray with you and pray for you. Stand up from your seats and we want to pray with you and pray for you. We'll go ahead and wait a little bit. If there's anybody sitting here today it's just saying I, I just need I don't understand grace I don't know grace I thought I knew it I don't I've been a church person all my life I just need some prayer you stand up stand up you need grace to infiltrate not just your mind but your heart you need grace to 
do a radical, spiritual, powerful, powerful, powerful work in your life. Stand up. And I, I, want, us to, I want us to minister to each other this morning. Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Anybody else? Please, 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 my last request. Anybody here this morning that's just in need of prayer that says, Peter, I, please, somebody pray for me. Please, somebody pray for me. And right now, if those of you that are sitting around, those folks who have been standing, you can look up, open your eyes, go near to them, surround them, put your hand on them. And, and pray. There are people up on the balcony as well as the main floor. Church, let's be the church. Look around, please, and make sure that every single person, every single person, every single person has somebody to pray with and pray for. Every single person. And I just want you to do one thing. Just begin to pray. Begin to pray that that, that that person, that child of God, that brother, that sister, would understand God's grace and all its truth. Don't even need to know their situation. Just pray this over them over and over and over and over and over and over. Go ahead. Go ahead. Take some time to do that. God's grace in all its truth. 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 To those who live with masks on in their homes and their schools, to those who are afraid to look in the mirror, afraid of what they'll see, we pray for God's grace in all its truth. To those who recognize their unworthiness but unable to see the height of God's love we pray for God's grace and all its truth to those who may see God's love but unable to see the depth of their unworthiness and sin we pray for God's grace and all its truth to those who are afraid and are wondering, does God love me? Does God still receive me? Does God accept me? We pray that we'll look to the temple and receive God's grace in all its truth. All its truth. All its truth. God's grace in all its truth. God's grace in all its truth. In a moment, we'll have the communion service up here. 
the very act that symbolizes what communion is, is a recognition that Jesus is our mercy seat, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was shed for you, so that a holy, perfect God would have communion with sinful man. Communion is a very act in which you look to the temple and you say, the way has been opened. I receive it. I receive it. Communion servers will be up front. When you feel ready, please come up. How many of you are thankful for God's grace in your life today? You can clap. Thank you, Lord, for your grace in me. Your grace in me. Your grace in me. Your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace that tells me that my worth is found in you. Thank you for your grace that tells me that my acceptance is found in you. Thank you for your grace that tells me that my identity, my significance, all that I am is found in you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for receiving me and loving me and delighting in me. And I love you, Lord. And I live my Talk to your soul. Say and rejoice. again. Tell them your love is not conditional on anything. I love you, Lord. Andy. And I lift my voice to worship. Speak to your heart. Oh, my soul. Rejoice, take joy, my King, 
in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet, let it be a sweet, that note, I bless you, children of God. I bless you, sons and daughters of God. Live your life this week knowing how much you are loved. Knowing how much He is for you. Knowing how much He is with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.